Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. We invite you to open a Bible to John chapter 17. We're going to finish out this wonderful chapter this morning by reading and then receiving from verses 20 through 26. John 17, verses 20 to 26. So John records, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Jesus continuing his prayer. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, our hope is in you. It's in you alone for all the things that we do desire, should desire, biblically to see in every heart that's gathered here in this room this morning. We are absolutely impotent. Uh, We are blessed that you've given us your word. It is the word of God. We are asking that through the preaching of your word, you would also give the Holy Spirit 
and that sovereign grace would sweep through every single heart, every mind, every soul, every person, and that you would continue to collect, to gather, to edify, to build up, to make a people for your own glory. Oh Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the marketplace holiday known as Valentine's Day has come and gone. Guys, if you didn't know that, oh well. Uh, This is a day that's kind of a pain, to be honest. It's kind of a pain if you're short on sweet imagination. Or if you're long on it, so that you use up a lot of it throughout the course of the year. Either way, you sort of come to this day and you're like, what in the world am I going to do this time? What am I going to do now? Again, if you are long on sweet imagination, maybe you're thinking, I've done this or that 10,000 times before, so I'm really at a loss. Maybe I'll just press the repeat button, right? I mean, I love my wife more than life itself. And because of that, I want to do something out of the ordinary for her, something surprising. And so I plan, and then I scratch plans, and then I toss around all these ideas only to bury them because, honestly, she's a little bit gloriously, beautifully nosy, and she discovers all the things that I have hidden. But behind whatever actually materializes, whether it's grand or simple, is really uh, just this, that the heart behind it all is what matters most. In the end, for every day, my love for Jenny seeks the best for her. I think I can say with a clear conscience. It seeks the best for her with the most particular kind of devotion. It makes petitions for her, pray for her. It reveals passions for her. It holds promises for her and nobody else, just for her, that are aimed at her peace and her joy and her hope in Christ. My love for her pursues her best. And what I want to say to us this morning, dear ones, is that the love of Jesus pursues infinitely better for each one of you, for us. And haven't we seen this in Jesus' praying in John 17? How greatly He's loved us as His very own people from all eternity to death and through death on a cross to give us eternal life that we might live now to His glory and then go on, as we see in our passage this morning, to see His glory forever hereafter. I can't think of a more consoling, a more captivating reality than that with a most particular and powerful devotion. You and I, we are loved by Jesus. We're loved by Him who knows not just any old best. We're loved by Him who knows God's very best. And He pursues that best for us with a sovereignty that cannot be beaten and a sufficiency that cannot possibly fall short. It's a love today that makes its final petition 
It's a love today that reveals His greatest passion for us. It's a love today that holds out a most lovely promise to us. And so that's what we want to do now. That's where we want to go. Starting with Jesus' final petition, if you look at verses 20 through 23. It's about the church's missional unity from that point in time to His return and then forever beyond it. Okay? So he expresses this three times. Verse 21, he says that they may all be one. Verse 22 then, that they may be one. Verse 23, that they may become perfectly one. Which probably alludes to the idea that he prays this unity to be increasing, not decreasing, increasing over time until it's perfected in glory. But so Jesus' final petition is about the unity of all His people. And that we might have it, He gives a, a few threads in these verses for us to follow, okay? So, the first is that this unity is rooted in a common faith in the apostolic word about Jesus. You see that in verse 20. He's prayed for the Father's glory, as verses 1 through 5, and then He is prayed for the disciples' ability to glorify Him, to glorify God in Christ, as verses 6 through 19. And now the subject changes again in verse 20 to those who what? Will believe in Me through their word. Through their word. And so here he, he takes the whole realm of His people into His heart and He gathers them up in this prayer, you and I are right there in verse 20. With every believer ever in mind, he's completely cognizant of you and me. And as he moves to pray for our unity across the ages, he refuses, I want us to see this, he refuses to leave it merely or mainly subjective in nature. He refuses to leave it as being conditioned upon our likes and our dislikes and our preferences and the whims of the culture around us. He bases it upon faith in the Jesus to which the apostles bore witness. Dear ones, there is a reason that the earliest church, if you go and look in Acts chapter 2, right after Pentecost, there is a reason the earliest church devoted themselves to the apostles' what? Teaching. And some great part of it was in divine answer to this prayer of Jesus in our passage, as well as the one that met us a week ago. If you remember a week ago, his prayer was not for the world. It was for his disciples. And we said, okay, but in reality, that was and is the very best way to pray for the world also. Do you remember that? The very best way to pray for the world also. It's to pray for the church. It's to pray for the disciples of Jesus to be faithful to the glory of Jesus. And now specifically, Jesus was praying first for those who would be His apostles. He's praying for them that they'd be enabled to carry out the ministry that He had given to them, which was a gospel ministry that would impact the world over. And of greatest importance was their writing down under the ministry of the Holy Spirit the divine and objective truth, the facts about Jesus. By our Lord's praying, they largely pinned 
the New Testament. They connected the dots from the old to the new, from the shadows to the substance, from the Christ that God had promised to Jesus the Christ. They articulated and applied the gospel to souls in practically every situation and setting. That's all the New Testament letters. If, as Augustine once said, the Holy Scriptures are our letters from home, it was mostly these first disciples that God used to deliver the completed set of those letters to us here on earth. Beloved Christ is the cornerstone of the church, but His apostles finished off the foundation. And that foundation is the Bible. And all that it has to say about Jesus with this urgent intention of generating and cultivating faith in Him. Friends, listen. If faith in Jesus be true, it is a faith in the apostles' teaching about Jesus. Christianity is word-dependent. It is word-dependent, and it is Christ-saturated if ever Christianity was. And if ever Christianity will exemplify the kind of unity that Jesus is praying for here in our passage. Again, as a week ago, so much of the division that we experience in Christianity, so much of the division that we experience in churches has so very little to do with the Christ-filled lines of Scripture. It has to do with us. <laughs> it has to do with the sinful tendency to let our own passions play God over the God of Scripture. Now, there will be times when godly persons will graciously disagree over doctrines that are significant enough uh, that it brings us to the point of earthly separation. But that's not usually what's happening when Christians do this. What's happening is the ill fruit of one or the other or both of slowly slipping away from the rock of Scripture. Esteem for the authority and sufficiency and simplicity of the Word has declined so that for all intents and purposes, the Word is none of those things really. Authoritative, sufficient, simple. And that's a tragedy. That we need to ask Jesus to reverse with us. It's that in prizing unity, we'd be stayed upon the faith that has been once for all delivered to the saints. It's that we'd root and care for our unity in the truth, in the truth of God's Word. Whether that involves rebuke or correction or exhortation or encouragement, whether it involves comfort or conviction, only let it exalt Jesus. Only let it collapse us upon the Holy Spirit. Only let it come up from the objective Word of God, and we can just pray, Lord, prove it mighty. Prove it mighty to guide the unity that you want us to know amongst one another. You know, there was a time when the, the Reformation, if you're familiar with that, Protestant Reformation, there was a time uh, when the Reformation was thought to be a schism, a threat to the true church when in fact it was a retrieval of something that had been lost. Do you know what that was? It was what had been lost in Josiah's day. 
that when found began a reformation then as well. It was the retrieval of humility before the word of God. And for the glory of Christ, we need to be praying that we would know that kind of humility today. That's one thread. Here's another. It's that whether you like it or not, we're kind of stuck with each other. We may separate on earth, but we're inseparable by nature. What I mean is, if we're all truly united to Jesus, we cannot ultimately be divided from one another. Do you see that in these verses? Here's how he prays it. He prays that they, verse 21, may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Or additionally, that they now, verse 22, may be one. Here he goes again. Even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Our unity is tied to our being united to Jesus. In that union, we've been indwelled by the Spirit of God in Christ, the triune God. That's what all that back and forth amounts to there. It's critical for us to understand that we all, though distinct, are yet, as Paul will put it, one body with one faith in the one Lord, sharing in one spirit of the one triune God. Theology is really, really practical. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. The only true God is a tri-unity, such that it is impossible that the distinct persons of the Trinity could ever walk out of step with one another. Perfect unity of mind, of purpose, of will, of being, so on and so forth, is essential to who God really is. And when Christ caused us to be born again, when He gave us a new nature, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. When the Spirit of God indwelled us, do you know what else necessarily entered into us? The ability and passion to have and to hold a unity that transcends the categories of this world. It's divine. If you believe in the power of the Spirit of God to take the Word of God and create a people of God who live and operate, function as one in God, you will be lonely in the world of men. And you may even be lonely in the world of the church. But no matter, you will still have the very best company possible. You will have the company of Jesus. Friends, the world, I want you to know, the world has a unifying spirit too. 
John talks about this in 1 John. The spirit of the world unites in error, in sin, in hating and being hated, in self-exaltation, in all the things that make for disunity. Disunity. And even where a common ground is found, it's only of earth, and therefore it's only for a moment. It's set in the shallows. It's all politics, it's economics, it's race, it's class, it's hobbies, it's sports, it's agendas, it's meisms. That's all it is. And truth be told, that is the sinking sand that gathers a whole lot of churches also. Things of this world that are doomed to pass away. Now in isolation, it's not all bad. It's not all bad. But it is all less than what holds the power to hold persons together as a single people for all eternity. What will you and I go out after this service? What will you and I go out and talk about today? Why will we stand out there on the steps and share a few moments with one another? I'm just trying to drill down here for a second. Why will we hold table fellowship together? Why will we keep after one another? Why will we one another in a devoted fashion at all? Because we're a lot alike? Because we share some earthly interests? because we like similar things, or because even if we aren't, and even if we don't, we are children of God with the Spirit of God and Word of God at our very heart of hearts. The old man who we were prior to Jesus sees only superficial points of unity and otherwise only points of division. And the new man... The new person, we see those two. We see those two. But then the new person indwelled by the Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth and obedience and love and Christ and unity, sees more than that. The Christian sees souls. Period. Souls. Either in need or in possession of Jesus Christ. We believe the grace of God is more powerful than all the boundaries of men. And in the world of the church, the new creature in Christ observes the new creature in Christ and lets that reign as being more definitive than anything else that could define us. Do you remember what Paul says in Galatians? There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female as it relates to greater standing with God, a place of justification. Why? Because you are all one in Jesus Christ. Our union to Him has united us and put unity, however we may have dismissed it in the past, in our 
hearts. We can't get it out. It's embedded. And not without a missional purpose, which is the final thread here in these verses. Church, our heavenly unity is meant to be the envy of the world. By it, if you look again at the end of verse 21, then also verse 23, the world is confronted by the truth that Jesus is Christ. When we agree as a people to put the Word first, to treat one another as co-heirs of divine grace, divine life, when we bear much and concede much, we put up with much, when we do all we can, despite our differences, whether they're natural or decided, to love each other and provide for one another and edify one another, to live under the banner, not of our own glory, but of the glory of Christ. When we do that, a people pulpit is built that preaches to the world, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has absolutely raised from the dead as both Lord and Christ. Repent of your sins and believe in Him. End of verse 21. End of verse 23 adds to that. And says our unity impresses upon the world not only the undeniable truth about Jesus, but also through Him the adoptive love of God available to sinners like them. Except the way Jesus puts it is very interesting, as always. Do you hear what He says? How He puts it? It's that the world might know, not exactly, how God has loved them. but how He has loved His own. That's what it says there. Beloved, just hear this. If you're in Christ, you should know God has loved you. (laughs) That's crazy. God loves you even as He loves Christ. That's why you're going to be in heaven. He's loved you, that is, as His own, with an everlasting, covenantal, gracious, and adoptive love. And that is to become visible to the world whenever the world makes its way into this world. It's like being at a wedding where the bridesmaids flank the bride and observe how the groom's eyes are set on her, not them. Her. Observe how his promises are being made to her. Observe how his affections. (laughs) I love the guys who are like, I'm not going to cry. And I'm like, yeah, you will. You don't even know. And they always do. 
She comes around the corner. They see her. Boom. Waterworks. Because love for her. Affections for her. Observe how his inheritance, all that he is, is pledged to her. Observe how his family is starting with her and not with them. And then they further see how all this love sparkles in her eyes. They see how it raises the corners of her lips. They see how it shines upon her face. She's just radiant with His love. How it irresistibly beckons all her love and a life that's also devoted to Him. They see all of that, observe all of that, and if they're being honest, perhaps then rises in their hearts some kind of hint of jealousy. I want to be loved like that. Our unity as a church then hands them good news. That love with which we have been loved is a love that's available (laughs) and offered to you. And you can have it. You can have it. Do you want it? That's the question. But you can have it. It can take hold of you right now. We too are sinners like you, and yet we've been loved by God through Jesus. We've been wed to God. We've been justified by God. We've been adopted into His family. We've been made His. Oh, and can it be? And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died He for me who caused His pain, for me who Him to death pursued? Amazing Love. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? I just want you to hear, it can be. And it is. Friend, you can be united to God and to His people this very second if only you would turn from your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ. He will save you right now. Don't wait. Don't wait. But dear ones, is that what our fellowship preaches? Do we have the brand of unity that builds this kind of people pulpit in the world? We need to understand, right? Jesus does not mince words. He certainly doesn't waste them. A fracturing world, a fracturing world, with its broken marriages and its divided homes and its disjointing workplaces and its segregational ideologies, its haves and its have-nots, will be met by the truth of the gospel by a world that unites in the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, to the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And my prayer is that that defines us. And you know what? That's Jesus' prayer too. It's his final petition for his people. And it gives rise to his ultimate passion for his people in verse 24. If you look there now. 
He says there, Father. I desire that they also, whom you have given me, just hear these words, may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So, if you can just wrap your minds around this. It's going to take a few brain cells, okay? Sorry. The the glory of Christ is the eternal radiance of the Father's forever love for the Son. It's the soul-satisfying beauty of God's everlasting and infinite delight in God as perfectly reflected in Christ. That's the heaven of heaven. That's what's called the beatific vision. And what we're going to see here in our passage is that it is all Jesus' passion. (laughs) What led Him to the cradle, what led Him to the cross, what led him back to the crown. It's all Jesus' passion that you and I get to see that. We get to see that glory with our eyes. Church, uh, we talk a lot about what we've been saved from. To the neglect, probably, of what we've been made and saved for. No one in their most sober moments wants to spend eternity in hell. No one. But the test and proof of a regenerated soul is do they want the heaven that heaven actually is? Do they want, do they long, do they desire to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It should shout something wonderful to our souls that Jesus desires that for us above everything else. And to clarify, this passion is not just that we might see Him through the eyes of faith, as we say. What He's talking about here is the sight when faith will no longer be necessary. He means seeing Him face to face. Seeing His glory with glorified eyes. He's alluding to that state where He Himself will take His hand and wipe away every tear from our eyes. Where we see Him and everything is well and best and satisfying and glorious. As you may know, there is something like a revival sweeping through Asbury and other places right now. Uh, We could say and pray a lot in light of it, but one thing has been striking to me. Uh, Of the several testimonies I've now read, uh, the one remark that seems constant is this one, the presence is there. The presence 
such that you do not want to leave. It's as if you're glued to your seat by the gravity and glory of God. Surely, they say, it's a foretaste of heaven. And uh, to that, we can pray and hope and we can all agree. But when we see the glory of Christ, as we have it here in our text, not only will we not want to leave, we won't have to leave. It won't even be an option that crosses our mind. You'll get to stay. And you'll get to see. And you'll get to worship tirelessly. And abide that way with joy inexpressible, finding glorious expression for all eternity. You will be glued to your seat and it will be wonderful. So a series of questions, some rhetorical and some not. But as this is the passion of Christ for us, shouldn't it be our own? Do you remember what Paul said in Philippians chapter 1? He said, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is what? Gain. Gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet, which I shall choose... I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two of these things. Then he says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. Why? Because that is far better. What is your desire? Does it match Paul's desire? Does it echo Jesus' desire for you? Do you think one will be elated, utterly elated with the glory of Christ in heaven who has no taste buds for it on earth? If the end for which Christ died was that we might inherit His presence and glory, Shouldn't that be the end for which we live? If our eternity is lived in the enjoyment of all that Jesus is, isn't our short time here best served preparing for that? Beloved, again, do you see in what he says that his glory is endlessly glorious? I said that it's the eternal radiance of the Father's love for the Son. We might also say it's the glory that God, the Father, knows that God, the Son, deserves from all eternity to all eternity. Listen, there will never come a time where the manifestation of God's beauty in Jesus will grow faint or run dry 
or bore or dissatisfy, which is also true right now, this very second. It will captivate for all eternity. That's how glorious it is. So, how is your spiritual hunger here in this world? How is your thirst? When we hear this passion of Christ, do we just yawn at it? I want Him to see my glory. We go, I don't know. I got other things to do. Care about. Oh, if so, God help us. Amazing how the things of earth can interest and occupy our hearts. Games. And sitcoms. And vacations. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait till June. I live for June. I can't wait to put my feet in the ocean. It's going to be glorious. No. I mean, yes, but no. Not as glorious as seeing the glory of Christ. Not even close. But are we longing for that? Are we preparing for that? Games and sitcoms, vacations, conspiracies, romances, and on and on and on it goes. And, and not all of it is necessarily evil, but again, what of Christ? What of His glory? What of that cistern that has no holes in it so that when it's poured out, all it does is fill us up and satisfy us to the brim? Nothing else is like that. Just Jesus. Do we have holy and intensifying passions for Jesus? And have we positioned ourselves to develop such a thing? I assure you, it is not pointless that you situate yourself in a church that's committed to feeding you not meager rations of Jesus, but a full feast day after day after day after day. You're going to want that when you see Him. If it's true, as the Holy Spirit says it is, that He makes us over from one degree of glory to another as we what? As we behold the glory of Christ. If that's true, then beholding the pulsating and substantive glory of Christ and not just some sketchy outline of Him or bare mention of Him on the way to what we think are more pressing issues is the most practical and heavenly thing that we could ever do. Again, to Asbury or Manhattan in 1858 or Kilsit a little bit earlier than that, or Wales, a little bit earlier than that, or Stuttgart, a little bit earlier than that, or Jerusalem, circa A.D. 30, when glory came down, 
And the Spirit of Christ filled their souls. When souls are made captive to the glory of Jesus, what happens? Only everything godly and heavenly. People leave off sinning for walking with God. They live more tightly to the book. They hunger for the truth. They thirst for it. They take to praying. They embrace God's family, God's church. Together, they begin to care for all people. They promote righteousness and grace in the land. They preach the gospel of Jesus. They can't imagine that Christ would long for them to see His glory and not long themselves for all others to see it too. Are you captive to the glory of Christ? Or, perhaps to shift gears a little bit, are you worried? Are you worried about missing out on it? Let me ask you this. This is the test that Jesus gives Peter after Peter is... Stumbled and almost fallen headlong. Do you love Jesus at all? Do you love him at all? If so, Jesus himself would have you take heart. It's not finally the greatness of our desire that will bring us all the way home. No. It is the omnipotence of His desire that will bring us all the way home. As your heart needs that comfort, I would implore you to take it. The passion of Christ here is not an exercise in futility. He wants you to see His glory. And because He wants you to see His glory, guess what? You will. Relatedly then and last, we have his closing promise to his people in verses 25 and 26. Once more, he addresses the Father notably, the righteous one. And in doing that, he sets off the world as unrighteous. The world does not know God, as will be proven soon enough, as they nail the righteous one, the one who does know God, to the cross. And yet, by His revealing grace, verse 26, His people will all come just there at the cross of Christ to put it all together. This, end of verse 25, is the one that God sent into the world, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. And, as He has And as He does, He makes still another promise to us. He will never stop, but only continue to make God known to us. If He didn't, we'd go dark. It's only because He continues to alight our hearts this very hour that you and I stay the course, that we cling to the truth, that we expect mercy, 
and ultimately become what He has purposed us to be. As you need to awaken. As you need the teacher who is able to alight your soul. If you want to grow but are apathetic. If you want to know but feel helpless. If you want to praise but you're downcast. If you want to be more steadfast but you find yourself just slipping and sliding. Again, we have great news for you. Jesus has made a promise that He fully intends to keep. If He's made God known to you, He will continue to make God known to you. He'll continue to communicate Him to you. It's the office of Jesus to do this. He will not fail at it. Not even the cross can keep Him from doing this. We understand, right? We're in John 17. Cross is a couple chapters down the way, right? The cross is still in front of him. Death is still impending. But neither of those things can keep him from communicating the truth of God to you. You see him here at the end of the chapter. I will continue to do this. Notwithstanding cross, notwithstanding the grave. Why? Because I am going to be raised from the dead. I'm going to be raised from the dead. I'm going to come alive. And as I live, I will continue forever to minister the truth and grace of God to your hearts. Or, if we're to tie it really tightly to the text, as we always want to do, I'm going to fill you up with the love of God for you as you have seen it in me. That's what I do. So again, it is not inconsequential who we preach or who we teach or who we exposit in this church. To proclaim anything other than Jesus will darken the lampstand that's meant to radiate Him. It will disease the body that He's purposed to display Him. But as Him we proclaim, and as Him we pursue, He has a promise that He will keep. He Himself will swell in our hearts so that we become a body that is indwelled and filled and marked by the love that we have discovered in the gospel. So dear ones, is that our cry? Is that our cry? Will it be your plea this afternoon, this evening, in the morning? Oh Jesus, without you, hopeless. Oh Jesus, continue. Continue. I hear your promise. I'm going to take you at your word. Please continue to make us a people for your glory. Please continue to make this a loving body that displays our loving Lord. You know, I say I love my wife more than life itself. I'd like to think that's true. But beloved, Jesus really does love us more than life itself. In fact, in fact, Jesus loves us more than a zillion eternal hells to suffer. And now He lives for us with the very best plans at heart. He loves us perfectly. And that's exactly what we've been seeing in John 17. That is what we've been seeing as Jesus prays. Perfect love unbeatable plans, 
omnipotent prayer. Oh, if only we could hear him as he prays for us right now. Preserve them. Father, rejoice them. Father, sanctify them. Holy Father, unite them. Father, use them. Oh, my Father, bring them all the way home. Grant them to see my glory. Oh, if only we could hear him as he prays for us right now. Yet, distance makes no difference. Whether we hear him or not makes no difference. Jesus is praying for us. Oh Lord, let the truth do what you will. Let's pray together. Please now. Raise the dead. Awaken the living. Get glory for yourself. Our hope is in you. And in you alone. Do all your counsel, we pray. In Jesus' name.